Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 1, and we'll read verses 6 through 13. Actually, I'm going to read from verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look into your word, that you would give us minds that are illumined by your Holy Spirit, that we would understand your word, and that understanding it, we would believe it, and believing it, we would obey it. Father, we pray that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So from the eternality of the Godhead, which we looked at last time, in, in whatever depth finite minds can get to, from the eternality of God, we turn now to an ordinary man named John. This John is not the writer of, of the gospel, but John the Baptist that it's talking about, right? The prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. An angel spoke to John the Baptist's father and told Zacharias what work his son was going to do. And here's, what that, uh, here's, here's a picture of that. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
So John the Baptist was appointed to announce the coming of the Messiah and to prepare the people for such an incredible event. It could, it could have been and was easy for the people to mistake John for the Messiah himself, and he often had to uh, make it clear to others that he wasn't the Messiah, but was just the forerunner sent before. I mean, you look ahead at, at verses uh, 19 and 20, and he's already, they're asking him, who are you, anticipating that he may be the Messiah, and he has to deny it. Even in this passage, this passage in chapter 1, notice how carefully it distinguishes between Jesus and John. Jesus has no beginning. He was with God before creation. He is God. He was uh, the one through whom all things were made. He's the source of life. He's the light of all men. John, on the other hand, was sent from God, and his name was John. <laughs> right? There's a huge distinction made just in how these two are described. You're plumbing the depths of timeless eternity when you think of Jesus. With John, he's a dude named John. And he had, had some work to do from the Lord. He, it's quite the contrast. But, you know, even, even still, um, Jesus would one day say that of those born of women, there was no one greater than John. No one greater. The distance between these two beings is greater than the distance between the, uh, you know, the amoeba and the human being. The distance between Jesus and John the Baptist. John is a man born through ordinary means, ordinary generation. Jesus is eternal. John had a beginning. Jesus is creator. John is a creature. I mean, there's this radical, radical distinction between these two. And... And yet Jesus becomes a man and has the name Jesus. Jesus condescends so far to take on what was natural to John, which was the flesh. This mind-boggling condescension. Now, because John is so less significant does not mean that John the Baptist doesn't have significant work to do. Jesus would die for the sins of the world and, and John would bear testimony to God's truth, specifically that Jesus was that Savior. He is the only Savior. He is the light of the world, right? God gives, God gives ordinary men very important work to do. But a mere man is not able to bear the sins of the world, right? There's important work to be done, but there are things that are impossible for sinful men to accomplish. The sacrifice of of just a man, a mere man, would be a blemished lamb, and his atonement would, would not be a full atonement. John, though, announces this Savior to the world. Just ahead in this gospel, it is John the Baptist who's shouting, right, the good news about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John was sent to do, to make that announcement. Look at Jesus. He came to take away your sins. He is the Lamb of God appointed. And John would speak to the higher rank of this man, saying, He existed before me. 
He existed before me. Oh, the angels had announced Jesus' incarnation and shouted glory to God in the highest, right? Remember the angels uh, shouting and, and saying that peace had come. But John announced to the world that he came to die as the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. That is an incredible calling, right? To testify about the light, verse 7, so that all might believe through him, through that testimony. Pastors do the same thing, right? Week by week, they testify about the light, right? Do you realize that that's what pastors do? Well, some pastors like to talk about, you know, when they played football in high school. I didn't play football. I played tennis, and there's no good stories that come out of tennis in high school. Okay. There's no glory in it. I played the violin in high school. I was the concert master, right? No good stories come out of that. But, but what we expect from pastors today is that pastors give us something to think about. They give us nuggets to chew on. They intellectually stimulate us during their lecture, right? But that is not what pastors do. Pastors are called to do exactly what John the Baptist did, which is testify to the light of Jesus Christ each week because we all are stubborn and need to hear that testimony again and again and again and again and again, right? Pastors point to Jesus Christ and call the nations to believe in him this is also the work of every Christian, right? It's not just the work of pastors. It's the work of all Christians. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, right? Every one of us has this calling to announce that Jesus is the one Savior of the world, the one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And the goal of your telling others about the light and about Jesus Christ is that they may believe, right? That's what it says of John. He testified the, about the light so that the, the Jews would believe. It's so common today for our faith simply to be treated as a, almost like a, a, a nationality, but certainly like a political orientation. To say Christian today makes people think more about conservatism than it does about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is tragic. That is, that is a failure on the part of the church, right? We are more likely to tell people that we think about what we think about our gun rights, and I'm, I've got lots of guns. Okay. Um, I keep thinking of the joy of YouTube broadcasting me every week. Um, at the end of the service, we'll be taking a bail uh, collection. <laughs> but we are more likely to tell people what we think about our gun rights or our free speech rights. Right? We, we like to talk about our rights, all those rights that we have. We testify to the greatness of our Constitution. We testify continually to the, the lunacy of progressives, right? But do we speak of Jesus? 
Jesus, the God-man. The fact that you believe Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven should have more impact on your testimony before other men than your political views. I mean, I don't need to prove that. Now, I know that the fact that that Jesus rose from the dead has an impact on your political views. How could it not? But I ask, when, when was the last time you just spoke of Jesus as your Savior, as the Lamb of God, as the light of the world, as the, the pearl of great price that God in his mercy lets you find? Right? That was John's calling. And that is the calling of all followers of Christ. John was not the light. You are not the light, but you have a witness, and that witness is the message that there is that one mediator, that's one savior. There's only one way to not burn in hell eternally, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. That one way. That is, that is why God has made you a Christian, so that he might glorify his son as you speak and glorify his son is you speak glorious things about his glorious son. He's pleased. It's really hard not to be looked upon as a fool when, you wit- when your witness sticks just to the, the basic gospel. It is so easy for us to hide behind our conservatism and respectable views of this or that uh, ethic or policy or philosophy, but that technique is motivated by our desire always to remain respectable. We want to be respected. We want to be respected by those who have no knowledge of God. And there is no way in a world that is hostile toward God to remain respectable and witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. There's no way to do it. Right? We're like the Corinthian church. They tried to do that. They tried to do that, and the Corinthians wanted to remain respectable in the eyes of the world, so respectable that they were like, you know, incest. Yeah. Incest. Not a big deal. We can, we, can, we can put up with that. But the apostles had already learned that that respect if you're going to witness about Jesus Christ, is impossible, right? You are already filled, Paul wrote to them. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and men. We are fools, for Christ's sake, but you, you're prudent in Christ. Ouch. We are weak, but you are strong. Right? You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, we are roughly treated, we are homeless. We toil working with our hands. 
When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Right? Corinthians wanted to be respectable. The apostles were like, let me tell you what it's like to follow Jesus Christ. It's miserable. It's miserable outwardly. John the Baptist perhaps was used to being the odd man out, right? Living in the desert, eating locusts and honey, dressing oddly. But, but that is our lot in life if we are followers and believers in Jesus Christ. We will always be the odd persons out. Right? By faith, we believe God created everything. That makes you odd. By faith, we believe the Son of God was born of a woman so that he might live and die for sinners. That makes you odd. By faith, we believe Jesus rose from the dead. That also makes you odd. Embrace it, right? Embrace it. Embrace that just like John the Baptist did. The apostles and every Christian man, woman, or child down through the ages, they have had to embrace the fact that they are odd, that they are fools, that they are unrespectable. You have a witness to, to testify to Jesus Christ, the person, the God-man, the light, the Savior, do not think that you've done your job. We shouldn't think that we have done our job if we are always and ever just talking about our conservative political views. Those are insufficient for salvation. It is only your faith in Jesus Christ that will fit you for heaven. Now, enough on that. Now, at verse 9, we turn back to considering the Son of God. The Apostle John says this about Jesus, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. First of all, notice that this passage says that Jesus was the true light. Ryle quotes from a commentary by a guy named Aerosmith. I'm not making that up. It's true. It's true. That I found helpful. He explains uh, why that word true modifies light and he writes this Christ is the true light in four respects firstly he is undeceiving light the true light in opposition to all the false lights of the Gentiles secondly he is real light true in opposition to the the ceremonial types and shadows thirdly he is underived light true in opposition to all light that is borrowed communicated or uh, comes from another. Fourthly, he is supereminent light, true in opposition to all that is ordinary and common. To su to, so to summarize that, Jesus is true light because all other supposed lights, the false gods of man's manufacturing, are no light at all. Right? Jesus is true light because he is the actuality of all those Old Testament types and shadows. He's the reality that they pointed to. Right? Jesus is true light in that he is the source of light, not just a reflection. And Jesus is true light because he outshines everything else, right? He outshines everything else. This, this light, as verse 9 says, has come into the world. 
That light has come into the world. And because of that amazing action, he enlightens every man, it says. Light came into the world, he enlightens every man. Now, in what sense does Jesus enlighten every man? Well, in the sense that he not only came to the Jews, but also came to the Gentiles. Right? He is the light of God's covenant people and the light of those who were once strangers to the covenants. He is then the only way of salvation for Jew or for Greek. It is not that Jesus enlightens and therefore saves all men, whether they believe in him or not. As Ryle says, all except heretics are agreed that the words cannot mean that all are converted and cannot signify the final universal salvation of all mankind. All believe this, except heretics. They don't believe this. Heretics believe that Jesus saved everybody willy-nilly, right? No faith is necessary. He just enlightens every man. So in what sense does, does light come to all men? Again, Aerosmith says, Christ disposes to everyone light sufficient to leave him without excuse. But Christ does not dispense to everyone converting light sufficient to bring him to salvation. Right? That's that Romans 1 we read earlier in, in Sunday school. Right? So Christ dispenses light to everyone, leaving them without excuse. But Christ does not dispense his light sufficient for everybody to come to salvation. Christ has shown himself in his creation, right, in the skies, in the mountains, in the stars. And as the apostle says in Romans 1, that leaves every man without excuse. If they do not believe in Christ... They have suppressed the truth of the testimony of the skies and mountains and stars. Now that truth, that the light of Christ shines, yet it does not mean all are saved, is borne out in the verses that follow. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All right, that's a dense passage, right? Jesus was in the world, it begins. Now, we often think that when it says Jesus was in the world, we think that that phrase is pointing toward his incarnation. Um, I don't think that's the case here. It's better to understand this at this point, pointing to the fact that Jesus has been working in his world before his incarnation. Right? He has been working in the world before his incarnation. Peter says that Jesus was working in the days of Noah. Right? It's uh, 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20. And yet, the very world which he had made, The work of his hands did not acknowledge, believe, or obey him. It knew him not. Sin had done such terrible damage, making man dead. Right? And even though Jesus was working in the Old Testament times, in the ancient world, right? They did not, they did not know him. Even more striking than that. Okay, so he starts, so John starts there looking back looking back to, to the ancient world. And then he moves on, gets a little bit closer, even more striking than that, Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, and they did not receive him. 
He was with those people in all those events we read about in the Old Testament. Notice in verse 11 that his own. Do you see that phrase? His own appears twice in the verse. The first his own is in the neuter gender in the Greek. The second one is in the masculine gender in the Greek. And so they have different reference. He came to his own. So the, the, the meaning of the first his own means he came to his own things. He came to his own things. In other words, he came to a people whose land, territory, cities, temple were all his property. It was all his. It was all his in a special way. Right? Jerusalem was his own possession. The people lived in his land. This makes their rejection of him that much more reprehensible. They are surrounded by his things. The things that he had given to them and provided for them. Those were all his and they refused then even to receive him. Again, the damage of sin was deep and made even those surrounded by his things, unwilling to receive him. And then we get to verses 12 and 13. After saying that the people of this world did not know him, the people of his nation, the Jews by ethnicity, did not receive him, the question naturally arises, right? It's the question you're thinking about. Well, then, who did receive Jesus and who does know Jesus? And the answer is here in these verses. And the answer is this. Those who receive and know Jesus are those who are born of God. That's the answer. That's the only answer. Those who are born of God. That new birth, or regeneration as the theologians like to call it, is the effectual cause of our receiving Jesus. We are born again and faith simultaneously grasps for Jesus. Right? Prior to new birth, we are not living. We are dead. We are incapable. Right? And so dead men do nothing. We must be born of God, or as chapter 3 of John's gospel teaches, we cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of God. The fall damaged us so much Right? That, that man without God's intervention is dead in his sins. He can see things about God in his creation which leave him without excuse, but he cannot overcome his sin with God, without God first making him alive spiritually. Now think about that. I mean, really think about that. So many people want to take credit for their salvation. Man is so proud. So many of us want to take credit for somehow putting God in our debt, impressing him just enough so that he has to give us salvation. So many people want to take credit for their salvation. Perhaps you do, right? Perhaps you do. And you haven't really come to terms with the fact that God that if, if God hadn't intervened in your life, your hard heart would remain hard until the day you die, and then judgment, right? Mankind is so prideful that he wants to take credit away from God himself for his spiritual well-being. That's how cataclysmically prideful we are. 
something only God can do, we're like, mm, no, 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 no. I'm going to, I can do. I can do this. Notice in this verse that there's a list of negatives. It is a list of what things cannot lead to our new birth. A list of things that can't lead to our new birth. First, we are not born of blood. Literally, that word, again, in the Greek is plural. It's bloods. We are not born of bloods. This, this is the Spirit's way of telling us that it is not because of who we are descended from. or it, It's telling us that because we're descended from Abraham or because we're connected to some godly people or some godly believers, that's not a reason we're going to be born again. That's not a reason. But, oh man, do people trust in that, right? My mama and my daddy believed and took me to church all the time. I'm good. I'm a Christian. Well, daddy didn't take me to church. Mama did, but... I'm good. I'm a Christian. Right? We are not born of God because we are American or because we are white or because we are not white or because we can trace our lineage back to one of the kings of England or one of the theologians of the Reformation or, or even one of the Scottish Covenanters. Right? You may have even been blessed to grow up in a Christian home. But you were not born of God because your parents were believers. God is not required to give you new birth because he gave it to your parents. That's hard for parents to accept. That's hard for reformed parents to accept. And then we get all in this muck and mire of presumptive regeneration and assuming that our kids are believers without ever preaching the gospel to them. And that's wicked. Now, the fact that you grew up in a Christian home gives you all kinds of privileges. And it was the mercy of God that you grew up in a Christian covenant household. But it is not... It is not the reason that God would regenerate you. Ryle says grace does not descend from parent to child. I mean, come on, parents. That makes you angry. Or sad, or fearful, or accusatory toward God. You can't abide the thought that God would not regenerate one of your, or all of your, children if we trust in bloods our connection to some godly person our heritage as a ticket to heaven and know nothing of the new birth that comes from God himself we will not be saved second we learn we are not born of the will of the flesh. Do you know people who think they are saved because they do things? They do certain things. Some of you may be confused and think that you're saved because you go to church. You're saved because you subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. You're saved because you do your Bible reading, right? You're saved because you're six foot four. 
You're saved because you've worked so hard on your physique. You're saved because you pray the rosary. You're saved because you spoke in tongues. You're saved because you have a, a, a somewhat intense intellectual life. You're saved because you work hard and you lead a decently moral life. You are, um, what's the word? You are, oh, I can't think of it. Perhaps you're, you know, you think you're saved because you're kind. You're kind to people. You're generous. You treat other people with respect. Perhaps, um, you're the sort of person who, when they see a, a car broken down along the side of the road, you are compelled to stop, and you help. No man can birth himself by the natural exertion of his own heart or his own will. First of all, your heart is fallen and depraved and evil and opposed to God, and so any man who thinks by his works he is saved is duped, right, deceived by his own wicked heart. God says a man is not born by the will of his own flesh. If he were the, the greatest philanthropist, the most tender and kind um, benefactor, without the new birth that comes from God, he will not be saved. Third, we're not born of the will of man. Right? There's the will of the flesh, which is your own, and then the will of man, this means that we are not birthed anew by the works of other people done on our behalf. Right? Man cannot confer grace on another man. Man, by his teaching, by his love, by his own sacrifices, by his works, by his kindness, by his protection, by the shedding of his blood, right? man, doing that on behalf of somebody else, cannot regenerate hearts. It can't be done. Saint so-and-so cannot do things that, make, that will make someone else receive the, 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 the superfluity of grace. My preaching, or Billy Graham's preaching, or Charles Spurgeon's preaching cannot make anyone here born again. It cannot. And so that leaves us with one source for the birth that makes us able to believe and receive Jesus Christ. The birth that comes from God himself. The birth of God. And the glory of that birth is that it is the work of a God who does not make mistakes. Right? Who does not lack the power to bring something that doesn't exist into reality. In a moment without exertion and without becoming tired. He, God does not lack omnipotent power to perform his will. Would you, want, would you want your regeneration, that only means by which any man will know and see and receive Jesus Christ, would you want your regeneration to depend upon your family connections? Oh, Vomit. Your family connections are filled with miserable sinners. I mean, your uncles and aunts are all crazy. Mine are. My uncle put a gun in his mouth and blew his brains out two years ago. 
Think seriously about your families. There is no salvation by you having a certain last name. Think about, would you want your regeneration to depend on your pitiful and generally very selfish works? Oh, brother, that's even worse than family. You know how self-centered you are. You know how everything revolves around your comfort. That is what we pursue. Unless God gets a hold of us and shakes us loose from that, right? We just pursue what we feel all the time. Do we really want to the will of our flesh to be that which we depend upon for our, for our regeneration? Or think of, uh, think of the, the kind attention and kindness you've gotten from other mere mortals But think about how temporary their attention and their kindness is. And think about how one time somebody can show you great kindness and the next day they can just throw you off. Do you really want to depend on their works for your regeneration? Yet, dear brothers and sisters, we often live like we do think those things are the means of our salvation. We We trust in our pedigree. We trust in our brain's ability to think cleverly about difficult things or to think more cleverly than our neighbor's brain thinks, right? We trust in our methods and works. We trust in our rubbing shoulders with others, you know, other saints who have book tables at conferences. I mean, we we Protestants, we Reformed, have our saints, that we trust in. That is not just a Roman Catholic phenomenon. How many of us wish we could have kissed the ring of R.C. Sproul? But how do I know we would rather not... I mean, why am I being so obnoxious about this? How do I know that we would rather not trust in God's birth? That the birth that comes from God... It's this, when I think about my children, when we think about our children, those of you who do not have children, this this won't make sense to you until you have children. We do not think it is fair that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. We don't think it's fair. right? We do not think it's fair that God didn't choose Ishmael, but chose Jacob. We trust that bloods, our children being born into a Christian household, we trust in the will of our flesh, our homeschooling and Christian schooling methods, our brand of theology, our presumptive regeneration views, our excellence, most of all, which is laughable. We trust in the will of man, having our children just present with us at church and and hearing the word of God. We trust in all of these things because we find it reprehensible that God would not automatically, by virtue of these things, regenerate my child. Actually, we find it reprehensible that he would not regenerate all of my children. And so finding it reprehensible, we turn to other things to ease the tension, right? To soothe our troubled hearts. 
And, and unbelievably, when you think about it, we begin to think that we are the means to our children's new birth. Mothers and fathers begin to think that it is by their wills that their children will receive Jesus. Again, how do I know this? How do I really know this? I know this because I know how little you and I pray for the salvation of our children. How little we pray for the salvation of our children, even while we get intensely scrupulous about the way we educate our children. I check my children's grades more than I pray for their salvation. I do. This doesn't mean I'm agnostic about the way we educate our children. Scripture has directions for that. But knowing that the new birth is of God should motivate us to pray before anything else. Go to the source of the salvation of your children. If we are motivated to educate our children as if that will be the means of their salvation, well, we should examine our hearts to see if we are thinking of the new birth correctly. Right? Seeking to baptize our children before we've even prayed for their souls and asked God to work could reveal the same misunderstanding. Baptism doesn't save your children. It does not. Again, what would we rather trust in for our children's regeneration? The God who is love, who is omnipotent, or the... F- <laughs> Or the flawlessness of your bloodline associations and example. (laughs) I mean, I am a pathetic sinner. Impotent. Weak. As As this verse is true for all men, so it is true for our covenant children. Right? They must be born of God. They must be born of God. All men must be born of God. And being born of God, they will receive him and be given a right, glorious right to be children of God. Think of that. What more could you ask for than to have the right to be a child of God? This is how we want things to work, but it requires trusting God, right? It, it, it's, um, and he is trustworthy. He does all things well. He will not make a mistake with your children. He doesn't do that, right? Each of them will be exactly what God has appointed them to be. Rest in that. And then speak to the one who has that power within himself. Plead with him. Plead with him. Pray for them. Pray for your children. Pour out your heart for them. Having said that, now let me conclude with this uh, quote from Ryle's commentary on the statement that God grants to those who are born again and believe the amazing right to be his children. Here's what Ryle says. He says, few in number... And despised by the world as they are, they are cared for with infinite love by a father in heaven who for his son's sake is well pleased with them. In time he provides them with everything that is for their good. 
In eternity, he will give them a crown of glory that fades not away. These are great things, but faith in Christ gives men an ample title to them. Good masters care for their servants, and Christ cares for his. Then he asks three little diagnostic questions, and I leave them with you in your conscience. Are we ourselves sons of God? Have we been born again? Children, have you been born again? Have we the marks which always accompany the new birth? And these are the marks that he says accompany new birth. Sense of sin, faith in Jesus, love of others, holy living, and separation from the world. That's a wonderful list. He stole it from the Bible. Let us never be content till we can give a satisfactory answer to those questions. Right? Don't be content till you can be satisfied in giving satisfactory answers to those questions. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of you, your mercy, your love, your gentleness, your kindness, your patience, long-suffering. We are in awe that you are merciful towards sinners, that Jesus, as, our, as the passage we read earlier said, died even while we were yet sinners. Father, we need, all of us need new birth, being dead in sins. Some of us have received it, some of us have not. And Father, it all depends upon you. You must regenerate, you must regenerate and and give that faith that you say is a gift. You must work, Father, because we as creatures in the fall died in our sins. So, Lord, for those who know this new birth, I pray that they would pursue their sanctification with, with strength and vigor. For those who do not know it, Father, we ask that you would work in their hearts. That you would do this, that you would bring new life. That you would, you would put to death the old man. That you would change that stony heart to a heart of flesh. Father, we plead that you would do this for our children whom we have taught your word and whom we have sung hymns with, who we have worshipped with time and time again, who we've, who we've prayed with and who we've disciplined and corrected, Father, we pray that you would change their hearts, that you would give them new birth so that they may see your kingdom, so that they may know the joy of living with the Holy Spirit, so that they may make progress in this life as they head toward their eternal home in heaven where they will rest and enjoy an eternal Sabbath. They will know your provision continually. They will 
no longer sin against their neighbors. Father, we desire to be your children. All these other things that we claim to be children of, whether it's people or, or intellectuals or schools of thought or, or, um, or whatnot, Father, we, we repent for putting our trust in them. We want to be children of God. We want that to be our first and greatest joy. Father, we pray that you would make us consistent in prayer. I pray that, our, that we would plead with you, that we would make prayers on behalf of others continually. Father, that we wouldn't just go through our self-centered prayers and our our laundry list of things that we have to get done, uh, Father, but that we would go beyond that and we would pray for others and pray for their souls, pray that they would know you and just call on you to act and not give you rest until you do act. Father, nothing happens in this world apart from your will. Nothing. The, The sparrow doesn't fall from the sky without your having ordained it father we and so we we ask you to to work regeneration in the hearts of our children father we pray that you would do this for the glory of your son jesus christ that he would have mouths that praise him not just because it's rote, not just because it's the next thing to do, but they would praise you genuinely because they have hearts that have been made alive and they see your kingdom and they love you and they sing out of their faith. And Father, we know that that would bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.